G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You'll know that of recent times we've been giving some attention to something that's significant that's happening next year. So still a full year away, and that being the centenary anniversary of the charge on Beersheba by the Australian Light Horse. Well... There's still more than a year to go because coming up on the 31st of October is the 99th anniversary. And, of course, while people are looking forward to the centenary anniversary of that charge, let's talk about what happened there in Beersheba on the 99th anniversary, which is coming up next Monday. Well, Jill Carey is the author of a book called The Anzac Call, and she retells the history and reflects theologically on what God was doing with the people of Israel and with the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Jill Carey joining us. Hello, Jill. Welcome along to 2020. Yes, good afternoon. Pleasure to be with you. Jill, this is such a significant time, and I know you like to reflect on some of the victories of our Australian forces. Uh, Oftentimes we're remembering some of the lost campaigns, but uh, it's important to remember the victories too. Oh, I think that's absolutely necessary. Um, People are, are taught in school about Anzac Day, and they know about Gallipoli, and they know about the Western Front. That's very well known, but unfortunately, the Middle Eastern campaign, which was mostly successful, is overlooked and forgotten. And I think that's a tremendous shame because we have to honour and remember our soldiers who were successful, uh, not just those that, that lost their, their battle. So that's the focus of what I've been writing Well, on Monday, there are going to be some memorials remembering the victory at the Light Horse Charge at Beersheba. Uh, Whereabouts are those uh, commemorations, those uh, memorials going to be held that you're aware of? Uh, They're not actually on the Monday. They're on the weekend before, this coming weekend, on the uh, 29th and 30th. In Perth, they're having the um, Australian Light Horse Association Cup at the showgrounds in Perth. Um, that will be a big occasion with lots of uh, horses and riders coming from around the nation. Uh, and I'm also aware on Sunday the 30th at 2.30pm at the Remount Park Light Horse Parade in Holsworthy in Sydney. They're having a commemoration that will involve uh, some members of Parliament speaking, also the pipe band and drums, and horses and riders from the first Australian light horse. Take us on a little journey here, Jill, because you've written about the charge on Beersheba by the Australian light horse. Uh, Put us in the picture of what was going on 99 years ago. Well, um, they've had two unsuccessful attempts to capture the city of Gaza, uh, not due to the error by any Australians or any of the Anzacs, 
um, that actually successfully got into Gaza the first time, but were told to that they had to uh, get out again, which was terrible. And that was a mistake on behalf of the British government, or not the government, the um, leadership of the army, the commanders who weren't actually on the on the forefront of the battle, but um, they thought that there were reinforcements coming and they needed to get the troops out. So unfortunately, um, about 18,000 lives later, um, they successfully took Besheva from the other end of the cordon and the line that um, the Turks had formed all the way from the sea right through to the other side of Besheva. They had to march through the desert uh, three, three nights in order to get there and then they had to battle all day on that third, third day in order to capture the city. Now, the British did all the hard work in the morning and they actually lost uh, around about a 1,000 lives in the part that they had to play on that day. The um, Anzacs, the, the New Zealanders, then captured Tel El Sabah or Tel Sheva, which was the only high point around the city. And without that, the charge wouldn't have been successful. They ended up getting backups from the Australian troops as well. And finally, about three o'clock in the afternoon, they managed to capture that and put those machine guns out of order. And then um, with about an hour's daylight, the, they had to decide what to do because they desperately needed water by this stage. And um, the wells of Abraham, which were famous from biblical times, were the, in the city and they had to get past the Turks to get to those wells to water the horses and to water the men. So they decided, Chevelle decided at about uh, 3.30 that they were going to charge and he called forth the 4th Light Horse, which were from Victoria, and the 12th Light Horse from New South Wales. And they, he decided that they would do a charge on the city. So there was about 800 light horsemen or about 4,000 Turks that were entrenched with machine guns and artillery. And they weren't expecting a charge. And... Um, that's what won them the battle because it was a surprise. And Jill, it was do or die on that day. They were out of water. Things were dire. The circumstances were, well, they were at their end if they hadn't charged. If you reflect on just the importance of the light horse making the charge on that day. Yeah. Uh, if they hadn't got the wells, they would have had to go back into the desert and probably a lot of them would have died because there just wasn't water available. And so um, they decided that this was, this was, as you say, do or die. And so they had a good motivation. And I was actually told by someone in Queensland whose um, father, this was a number of years ago, he spoke to me. I think he said it was his father who was in the charge, who had um, been a, a farrier. And he was used to working with horses and he was very proud of the fact that he was always in charge of the horse. And he told me, except for one day in his life. <laughs> and that one day was the day of the Battle of Besheva. And he said, my horse smelt the water and there was no way I could stop him. <laughs> now, this is so significant. And the reason why it's important to reflect on this charge at Beersheba is that really this was the catalyst for a changing in direction for really what we could say is world events uh, that really freed up 
the opportunity there for the reinstatement of Israel as a nation. Uh, reflect on just how significant that charge was and the change that came from it. It was extremely significant because um, these are the same Turkish armies that had defeated the British and the Anzacs at Gallipoli. And they now were stopping them from coming into the Holy Land and and, uh, Britain was wanting the soldiers to get uh, Jerusalem by Christmas as like a Christmas present because things were going so badly in the Western Front and they needed some encouragement. And uh, when the Anzacs broke through on that particular day, it was a moral victory as much as a physical victory because um, the Germans and the the Turks, they just never expected that uh, any troops would be audacious enough to dare to make such a charge. And when they did, it was like this, they were demoralised. So after that, they they feared the Anzac troops. And when they saw them coming, they were more likely to um, run the other way than actually have a, a big stand-up fight. When they saw the, um, the slouch hats with the emu feathers, <laughs> that was a sign that the Australians were um, heading in their direction. Well, Jill... Stay with us. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Uh, Jill Curry, our guest, she's the author of a book called The Anzac Call that reflects on the value of the victory as the 800 horsemen in the Australian light horse made their charge on Beersheba uh, almost 100 years ago as people are looking forward to the centenary, but the actual 99th anniversary is this coming Monday. We'll continue our conversation in just a short while. Taking a little time ahead of a important anniversary next Monday, which will be the 99th anniversary of the Light Horse Charge on Beersheba. Now, there's a lot of people already making plans for a huge centenary commemoration next year, 2017, on the 31st of October. But we're talking about the anniversary that's coming up on Monday, and there are a number of things that are going on this weekend. Jill Curry is our guest. Jill is the author of a book called The Anzac Call, and in her book she writes about the victory uh, that happened there at Beersheba. Jill, as we reflect on the victory and the victory over the Turks, because you were reflecting on losses at Gallipoli and our major focus when we have commemorations remembering our Anzacs, but this was significant because, as you say, it was like a moral victory too, and there were some major changes that happened after that charge on Beersheba. Yes, from Beersheba on, the the Turks were basically in retreat, although they weren't going to give up without a, a good fight, naturally. Um, but from that point on, um, the British troops were able to push the the Turks right back and eventually take Jerusalem by December. And um, that was a wonderful victory, although the Turks then formed another cordon, which went from the sea right down to Jericho. And um, they had a stalemate there all over Christmas and the, the summer period. So it wasn't until the following year that they were able to break that. And that was another enormous victory once they did that. That was in September of the following year in um, 1918. And in six weeks, once they broke that cordon, the 
They travelled about uh, 560 kilometres on horseback in six weeks, pursuing the Turks all the way back to Turkey, the other side of Aleppo, right through Syria, and and, uh, took Damascus as well. So this wasn't just one battle on one day. If people know anything about the Middle Eastern campaign, it's usually about the Battle of Besheva. It was actually two and a half years of very hard slog in the most atrocious conditions, such as 50-degree temperatures in the desert in uh, summertime and trying to fight in soft sand when your boots are getting full of sand and you can't move, not to mention the flies, the malarial mosquitoes and... uh, all those sort of things they had to deal with camping out um, and also the cold in winter. Significantly, it was the breaking of the 400-year Turkish Ottoman Empire, the reign of that empire, which was very extensive. Uh, but this was breaking points and things began to change from that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the political ramifications from the success of the British and Allied troops in the Middle East changed the whole course of history in the Middle East because that led to the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. We then had um, the British took over part of it. They took over the area that became Iraq and also Palestine, which then became Jordan and Israel. And the French took over what became Lebanon and Syria. And uh, people think of Palestine only being Israel, but actually the whole of Jordan was also part of Palestine at that time. And a homeland was actually given to both the Jews and the Arabs out of that breakup and the, um, the British mandate that they had over Palestine. So actually the Jewish people got 23% of Palestine and the Arab people got... of Palestine, that was about 38,000 square miles, and the Jewish section was 8,000 square miles. So there's quite a significant difference, and people don't know that bit of history. So the Arabs have actually been given a homeland by the League of Nations, which was the predecessors to the United Nations, and that was ratified in 1922 at the San Remo Conference. Jill, as you reflect on these things and the way the outcomes have happened after that charge on Beersheba, and coming from your Christian foundation, how do you interpret the events that were going on around that time and correlating those with the way you understand the description of what happens in the Bible with the reinstatement of Israel, the return of God's people to the land? Well, the political uh, ramifications were huge, but the spiritual ramifications were enormous. Um, When I started to realise from the scriptures that these were the days that the prophets of old talked about, just about every one of the prophets talked about Israel being dispersed for their disobedience to God, but they also talked about the return of the people to the land. And so for um, there'd been various Muslim groups that had been in the land for almost 1,400 years, the Ottoman Empire there for 400 years, with one little break for a a time when the uh, Crusaders were in the Holy Land. Um, And then once once the success of the Middle Eastern campaign in World War I, 
then it's cleared the land for the Jewish people to be able to return to the land, as prophesied by so many of the, the scriptures. Um, many people think that that only was affected by the fact that um, they came back before Jesus. But Jesus also talked about a time of the Gentiles that would Jerusalem would be des- desolate until the times of the Gentiles um, were completed. So that means that there is a time when the Jewish people are going to come back. And he was talking about afterwards, not before him. And also many of the prophets talk about a return from the ends of the earth, also talking about a return from the lands of the of the north and from the uh, islands of the sea. They're talking about in the end times and um, they're talking about a restoration to the land of their ancestors, their forefathers. So many of those scriptures were not fulfilled completely with the the return from Babylon because it was only from the north. It wasn't from the ends of the earth. So I think we are seeing right now most momentous days since Jesus walked the earth physically. And um, um, understanding the Jewish feasts, there were three feasts in which the, the, all the people were told to gather in Jerusalem. One of those was Passover, and Jesus fulfilled that with his death and resurrection. The next one was the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, and that was fulfilled when the church began on the day of Pentecost. That's the festival of Pentecost. And the third one is at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were told to come to Jerusalem. And um, the, the, the feasts, the autumn or fall feasts in the Bible talk about the return of Jesus for his second coming. So if God fulfilled literally the first two of the feasts, I think he's gathering the people now in preparation for the return of the Lord. And that's where we come in because we need to get on board what God is doing in these end times and these momentous days. These are truly significant times. If we reflect back to the charge on Beersheba, uh, all of those light horsemen are now uh, dead, uh, but their families are continuing to tell the stories. And I know that there are many who might be trying to uh, gather those stories, to glean what they can from family stories and creating that history that uh, that can certainly uh, add more colour to the, the way that we understand that charge of the light horse. Uh, you're in touch with some of those families. Yes, actually on the 31st on Monday this this year, uh, I'm going up to visit Peter Hayden. Peter is a direct descendant from Guy Hayden, who was in the charge. And um, also the horse Midnight was Guy's horse and his brother and um, his horse were also in the charge. And they survived, except for Midnight. Midnight had a bullet through her and unfortunately that was her 12th birthday and she died on that day but that same bullet went through the the horse then through the saddle and ended up lodged in Guy's back and um, five days later he was operated on and that bullet was taken out from his back and sent to his mother back in Australia. Um, Now the family still breed horses 
to this day, mainly for polo, and uh, they still have the bullet. <laughs> so I'm going up to, to visit Peter and to find out a bit more about their family history and uh, to visit. They have a little museum on their property. Um, so it still continues. The story is still being told. Jill, uh, all the best to you as you glean some more from the facts that the family will be able to share about their family stories that have been passed down to a new generation today. And uh, I'll point people to get a hold of your book. It's called The Anzac Call. Now, there are two streams of your book. You've written one that has a theological uh, interpretation of some of those facts that have happened uh, almost a hundred years ago and uh, your other one is one that is written for more a secular market called Victory. Similar yeah. content but uh, where can people get a hold of the Anzac call, Jill? Um, they just go to the website um, au, uh, and there's a- another website called Besheva 100 and that's B E E R S H E B A, and then the uh, figures 100.com.au. It's called the Anzac Call.com.au, and you'd be able to get a hold of Jill's book. Uh, Jill, just great getting your insights into what happened there 99 years ago this coming Monday. Really appreciate your insights, and uh, let's catch up again sometime soon and talk through some of the other side issues that come from the win at Beersheba. Thanks for joining us, Jill Carey. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.